All right, let's um, say a prayer together. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity um, to be here to study your word. And Father, to study the deep things of God, to consider Christ in um, a very new and different way. We realize, Lord, that excellence, as we shall see in these next few sessions, is not an option for the Christian. But Lord, it is actually a necessity. It is the expectation of God in our creation, and we trust and pray, Lord, that you may abide with us now as we go into this presentation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as you can see, the, um, the whole concept here is the, the idea of the seminar is to look at the concept of Christian excellence. Where does excellence have a place in a Christian's life? And building this upon the concept of higher than the highest. So I just want to first start off with a couple quotes uh, from different thought, thought leaders and individuals in the world that we may know of, um, just so we can kind of get an idea of when you think of the concept of excellence, what comes to your mind. So when you think of excellence, what do you think it means to excel? What is excellence to you? Being the best. Being the best? Being the best that you can be. Anything else that comes to your mind? When you think of excellence. So you think of perfection when you think of excellence. Okay, that's good. Um, who, if you could name an individual who you think is excellent, who would you name? That you know of in your life right now. You say, this person is excellent. Obviously, besides Jesus. Uh huh. He's excellent. He's very, very good. Like, I class him up Uh huh. Gotcha. So, essentially, he's the best out of the circuit of individuals and where you would categorize him. Right. So, you would consider him to be an individual who, if you had to attribute excellence, you would say he would be a person of excellence. All right. Well, I want to share with you some thoughts uh, from different individuals. This is Lyndon B. Johnson. He's a former U.S. president, United States. And he said, the noblest search is the search for excellence, is the search for excellence. Then you also notice Joe Paterno, he made this statement. He said, losing a game is heartbreaking. Losing your sense of excellence or worth is a tragedy. So it's saying that there's an association here as a sports individual. He says, look, you, you, can, um, you can lose a game. That'll break your heart. But if you lose your desire for excellence or for worth, a desire to go beyond, please come forward. You don't have to sit in the back. Um, if you lose your desire for our sense of excellence or worth, that is a tragedy for many of us. Martha Graham made this statement. She said, the only sin is mediocrity, is mediocrity. So these are people in the world who are making different concepts, ideas about, uh, listen to Oprah Winfrey. She says, I was raised to believe that excellence is the best deterrent to racism or sexism, and that's how I operate my life. Now, we know where Oprah has aspired to, and we know where she is currently. She's one of the wealthiest people in the world. <laughs> and at the same time, Oprah says that she was taught, she was raised to believe that when her being a black female to overcome racism, to overcome sexism, the only deterrent was excellence. And we'll actually look at an actual case of that in different areas of philosophy, where people were biased towards a philosophy, biased towards an individual because of their race, and how excellence was a means of overcoming the barriers that exist in society. Herman Hesse made this statement. He said, what I always hated and detested and cursed above all things was this contentment, this healthiness and comfort, this carefully preserved optimism of the middle classes, this fat and prosperous brood of mediocrity. So here he is, is this German leader, and he's saying, look, this is the thing that I've always hated and detested, this concept of it's okay just to be average. This constant brood is what he calls it, prosperous brood of mediocrity. Philip Brooks made this statement from a book called I Love Books. I highly recommend it. If you've never heard of it, it's by John D. Snyder. It's, it's entitled I Love Books. Any person who desires to be excellent, you need to read that book. <laughs> and this is one of the quotes from that, uh, from that book, I Love Books. He says, bad will be the day for every man when he comes, when he becomes absolutely contented with the life that he is now living, with the thoughts that he is thinking with the deeds that he is doing, when there is not forever beating at the doors of his soul some great desire to do something larger, which he knows that he was meant and made to do because he is still, in spite of it all, the child of God. If there's never something beating at our doors for something better, 
to say, look, you can do something larger than what you did yesterday. This concept, he says, when we get to the day we say, look, the thoughts that I'm thinking today, I'm fine. I never have to think again. The things that I did today, I never have to do anything else because I've achieved this place of excellence where there's no way to go beyond. He says, bad will be the day for every man when we reach that place. Edwin Bliss made this statement. Perfection, fortunately, is not the only alternative to mediocrity. A more sensible alternative is excellence. Striving for excellence is stimulating and rewarding. Striving for perfection in practically anything is both neurotic and futile. Will we ever get to the place where we'll be completely comfortable with what we have done? It's oftentimes said to us, and we often think it in our minds, that we are, you are your best, you are your worst critic, right? When no matter what you do, other people may praise you and thank you um, for what you have done and say, man, it was blessing. To me, I saw no flaws in it. As a preacher, I typically, you know, when you talk to your friends, everyone always wants to encourage you when you preach. Oh, yeah, praise the Lord. It was a blessing. It was a blessing. But you want to put people to the test. Really? Okay. What do you think I could have improved? Then people kind of stop and think. And some people, I, don't, I didn't see anything wrong with it. I thought it was fine. I thought it was perfect. You're like, really? So this began to give me personal insight in my experience that I cannot trust the opinions of other people to determine my standard of excellence. The question of excellence, as we'll look at in the second presentation entitled 100 Percenters, is the concern of what exactly am I talking about when I'm striving for excellence and I'm looking at room for improvement in my own life. Pearl Buck made this statement. She says, the secret of joy in work is contained in one word, excellence. To know how to do something well is to enjoy it. Isn't that true? You know, you think about the things that people who play instruments, when they know how to play that instrument well, they enjoy it, don't they? I had a friend, he plays the piano, and he sings, he's a tenor. And when he's stressed, when he's having a rough day, when things are just not going the way that he had wanted them to go, he goes to that piano and he just sings songs. He just plays. And the fact that he can play well, no notes, no music, he can play by ear, all these different things, and sing at the same time, to know how to do something well is what Pearl seems to define for us as the concept of excellence, learning how to do something well. Aristotle made this statement, Excellence is an art won by training and habituation. We do not act rightly because we have virtue or excellence. Follow his thinking. But we rather have those because we have acted rightly. So we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. Do you understand what he's trying to say? So he says, excellence is an art, first of all, it's won by training and habituation. So where does the excellence then lie? Is it in the result or the preparation? The preparation, right? So he says, it's won by training and habituation. So he says, we do not act rightly because we have virtue or excellence. We act, he says, but rather we have these things because we have acted rightly. Then he goes further and says, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. John W. Gardner made this statement, excellence is doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Extraordinarily well. We'll look at some statements from the spirit of prophecy that'll take this statement a little deeper. Jose Ortega made this statement, excellence means when a man or woman asks of himself more than others do. When a man or woman asks of his or herself more than others do. Just surveying some different ideas of what people think of excellence. Maribel Morgan, persistence is the twin sister of excellence. One is a matter of quality, the other a matter of time. So you have these excellence and persistence, they're like twin sisters, almost like Siamese twins. One is an issue of quality, persistence is an issue of time. So if you can succeed in quality and in time, both of these areas, you see some people may act well at one time. You can win the gold medal in, in one event, but four years from now someone comes along, swims faster than you, runs faster than you. So yeah, you did it one time. But imagine if you could maintain gold medal winning for that event for your entire life. Would that not be saying something? So you say, I'm constantly aspiring for excellence. Now that I'm older, my body's worn, I may not be able to endure the same kind of training. He's endured not only persistence, but excellence. So persistent excellence even becomes an issue. Vincent Lombardi, the famous football coach, said the quality of a person's life is in direct proportion to their commitment to excellence regardless of their chosen field of endeavor. <laughs> the quality of a person's life is in direct proportion to their commitment to excellence. 
James W. Gardner made this other statement. Some people have greatness thrust upon them. Few have excellence thrust upon them. Well, why is that, James? They achieve it. They do not achieve it unwittingly by doing what comes naturally, and they don't stumble into it in the course of amusing themselves. All excellence involves discipline and tenacity of purpose. So here we get excellence coming out in the form of discipline and being steadfast and fixed upon a particular purpose. There was a friend when I, when I studied business uh, in college, there was a professor who was talking, I was taking my entrepreneurship class, and he was saying that one of the lessons of being an entrepreneur and one of the, the ways that, that people succeed, he was a very successful entrepreneur and he said, look, I have a guy, I call him a guru. And this guru, what happens is I give him a task and what happens is when I tell him, hey look, I need these papers to be copied. He will take those papers, he will go to the copier, it does not matter how many people stop him, it does not matter what your authority or your position in the company is, if you come to him while he's trying to copy papers, he will tell you, when I'm done copying papers, then I will come and talk to you. And he was showing that this guy is like a laser beam. When he gets one task, he focuses on that task, makes sure it's done well, then he puts it down. Up until that point, you cannot distract him. But many of us, as we strive to be excellent in various fields, we end up losing the excellence because we get distracted. We lose the tenacity of purpose, or perhaps we lose discipline. And, she, and um, James Garner connects these things very well. Ralph Martin, we're almost done with some quotes and we'll jump right into scripture. Excellence is not a skill, it's an attitude. Excellence is not a skill. It's not that people are born with excellence, or that, hey, you know, you're more prone to be excellent than somebody else. We'll also look at that. This is one of my favorite ones. Excellence can be obtained if you care more than others think is wise, risk more than others think is safe, dream more than others think is practical, expect more than others think is possible. Excellence is possible. You can obtain it. And you see the heart of this quote, this constant thing is always thinking more. <laughs> Thinking more is how this is subtly bringing out excellence. No, no, there, there can be more. I think there can be more that can be done. There's more that can be said. There's more books that can be written. There's more lectures that can be given. So there's, in, in, in this concept, this was an, actually an anonymous quote, <laughs> but it was very powerful. Now, just to give you the etymology of the word excellence, it stems from the Latin excellere or excellentia, which means surpass. So excellence in its basic most rudimentary definition just simply means to surpass. It is not a static word then, it is a dynamic word. Perfection is static. When you get to a place of perfection, you are there, you're perfect, you are complete. There's nowhere else to go. But excellence says no, there's surpassing. So one person said this, I, I had uh, done uh, some, uh, some lectures called Biblical Economics, and I was talking about um, different principles of how we make decisions. And one of, the, one of the things that came out of that, uh, of that talk was the fact that uh, it was said that good is the enemy of best. So oftentimes, why is it that we settle for good when we can achieve best? So you sit down and you say, okay, should I eat this or should I eat this? Good is the enemy of best. Oftentimes within the Christian life and especially within Adventist circles, we are not choosing between good and evil. We often are choosing between good and best. But then the statement goes on to say, but best is the enemy of better. <laughs> so say good is the enemy of best. Don't settle for anything less than the best. But then once you achieve the best, best then becomes the enemy of better. We cease to strive for anything beyond that. And this becomes the concept of excellence challenges us to always surpass, to always press forward, to always keep going. Yes. Actually, in the Hebrew thinking, uh -huh. perfection is exactly that. Yes, yes, we'll actually perfection look at that. Is not static. Yes, correct. In the Bible, perfection is not the static. People thinking perfection is, is growing, growing, growing. Yes, exactly. We'll actually look at that in a second. So, exactly the right thing, and that's what I actually, he, he kind of let the cat out the back, <laughs> is that excellence and perfection in the Bible are actually things that are be synonymous. Is that in the, in the biblical mind, excellence and perfection are the same thing. Perfection is not, oh, you got to this place. Only God is perfect in that sense. He is complete. There's no further that God can go um, as far as his character and everything. Now, let's look at some things of what God's word says. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Did you guys bring Bibles? No? They're coming? Her Bible is coming. 
All right, now I'm going to use this chart. So Genesis chapter 1, and basically what I'm going to start um, establishing here is to talk about a, a general basis for excellence. So Genesis chapter 1, and uh, notice with me, starting in verse 11, oftentimes when the Bible wants to emphasize something, it uses the mechanism of repetition. So we say when we want to know what is the passage trying to emphasize or to get across, back in those days, they didn't have Hebrew Microsoft Office, you know, so you couldn't like highlight, italicize or bold something to say, this is what I'm trying to get across as I'm writing this. So typically when we're studying the Bible, one of the, one of, one of the key ways to assess the depth of the passage and its subtle message is using what's being repeated. The Hebrews actually used a lot of repetition in their writing, but it was typically repetition of thought. But anyway, without getting too, too deep into this, notice in Genesis chapter 1. It says in verse 11, And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. Verse 12, And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Then we jump down to verse 21. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. Verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing of the beasts of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after his kind, and the cattle after their kind, and every living thing that creepeth on the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. So you see the, the phrase that I'm seeking to bring out here? What phrase is that? After his kind, right? So we see this phrase repeated in Genesis chapter 1, after his or their kind. Now follow this. We're going to make two points out of this concept. So here, this begins to debunk this concept of, uh, you know, people get into things with theistic evolution and all this other stuff. But the Bible says, when God created the seed, these trees, he says, it produces after his kind. So when he creates an orange tree, orange trees only produce what? Orange Oranges, right? And other orange trees. So if you plant an orange seed, you're going to get an orange tree. This principle is so trusted by humanity, many farmers in the world, is that when they go to plant an apple orchard, are they thinking, man, I might get grapes this time? Has that ever crossed the farmer's mind? No, it's never crossed his mind. When he says, hey, I have an apple orchard, I have, you know, peach trees in my, in my farm, so when this time comes, you can actually give me, I'll give you some peaches, we'll trade, and all these different things. Well, you look at the seed, it doesn't look like a peach, right? It's a seed. But we're so trusting that in this seed, it will only produce what it is. It's a peach seed, it's only going to produce peach trees. So the first thing that we can derive from this concept is that you cannot separate what something is from what it will produce. You cannot separate what something is from what it will produce. Jesus used the same illustration in Matthew chapter 12. You guys remember that? Or Matthew 7? Jesus says that by their fruits, right? You shall know them. Does a man gather grapes of fig trees? No. He knows if there's figs on there, it's a fig tree. You can be sure. So you have this concept that this principle is so trusted. In Galatians 6, Paul says, be not deceived. Whatsoever you sow, you shall reap. <laughs> if you sow fig trees, you're going to get figs. That's just the way it is. And this principle goes back to creation. So God created it in nature. He says, after his kind. So you cannot separate what something is from what it will produce. All right. Is this point clear? Yes. Now, notice the second point. When it produces, let's say like this little tree, right? So we kind of have this little tree. I'm not an artist. So he comes along. And the tree has these little fruits, you know? So it's got there. And this orange tree falls, this orange falls to the ground. And it plants. And let's say the seed takes, you know, it germinates and all these different things. When the seed germinates, does it immediately become an orange tree? Yes or no? So this is what I'm saying. The farmer, he goes, takes his orange seed, puts it in the ground, and as he's putting it in the ground, he starts lifting off the ground because it's immediately becoming an orange tree. <laughs> That's not what's happening, correct? 
So he knows that he puts the seed in the ground, there also becomes a process of development. Do you follow that? So it starts at certain stages where it's becoming mature. Are you following me? So therefore you have this process of development that is, that is speaking. So you have this process of development that happens. Now we'll connect this to excellence in a moment. So here you have, okay, situation produces after its kind. Then it has this steady growth of development, right? Now go back to your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, and notice what the Bible says in verse 26. So in verse 26, God says, and God said, let us make man in our image. What's that next phrase? After our likeness, right? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So get this. The standard for the whale was the first created whale, right? So this was once God created, he said, great, great whales in the sea. They only produce baby whales. And then baby whales eventually become mother whales that produce other baby whales. But now the Bible says, after repeating this phrase throughout Genesis 1, everything else in creation, its originator, its standard was in creation itself. But when it comes to humanity, God says, I'm going to make man after my kind. So follow this. We just saw these, these different principles, right? So God produces us after his likeness. So point number one is you cannot separate what something is from what it will produce, right? So we become, this is where we have this concept that we're made in the image of God, right? So the story of humanity does not begin with our brokenness. It does not begin with our rebellion. The story of humanity does not begin with this desire to rebel against God. The story of humanity actually begins with God himself, his image. That is the most essential component of what it means to be a human being, is to be made in the image of God. So our story is not about, oh, my weaknesses and my failures and my inabilities and my shortcomings. My story begins with the fact that, look, you were created to be in the likeness of God. And thus, if whatever God is, this is what he produced in you. This was his intention. At the same time, we also realize from the phrase that there is a process of development, yes? So if God is the originator, right? You were produced after his kind, how long is your development? Any guesses? Infinite, right? So unlike the, the tree here, humanity has this infinite path of development. You will never arrive. <laughs> You're produced after the likeness of God, and God is eternal. God is infinite, has always been. He is the I am. So you have this concept that, hey, look, he produced me. I'm after his kind. So you have this situation where I'm produced in the image of God. We're going to come back to that in a moment and how we connect this to excellence. But we see that, therefore, there's this process of development. It's an infinite process of development that God has put us upon. So this concept of education where the Bible, where we, when we talk about in the book Education, she says higher than the highest human thought can reach is God's ideal for his children. And know what the next word is? Godliness, Godlikeness is the goal to be reached. So whatever plans you had for yourself, whatever desires for greatness, whatever desires you say, look, one day I'm going to be this. The Bible simply says from your creation that you were created after the likeness of God, whatever plans, whatever desires, whatever aspirations, hopes or dreams, they're not big enough. Because higher than the highest human thought is God's ideal for his children. Godliness, Godlikeness. So do you see here that Adam was produced after the likeness of God? Did Adam, was he created as a person who had arrived? Yes or no? So when Adam was created, right, he reflected the image of God, yes? But did he have growing to do? Just like the baby whale was just like the mother whale, but she had growing to do. Are you with me? So Adam was not created in Eve. They were not created as, oh, we arrived, that's it. <laughs> no, that's not what happened. They were created and they were set upon this path of development to reflect more and more and more the image of their creator. If that's clear, let's say amen. <laughs> so with this being setting the tone, now let's dive into the concept of the image of God and why this connects us to excellence. Now, is God excellent? Yes. Well, let's look at a Bible text that tells us that. Go to Psalm verse 8, chapter 8, I'm sorry. 
Psalm 8. And I want you to notice this. Psalm 8. And it's actually on the beginning and the end of this psalm. So someone, can someone read verse 8 and verse 9 very loud for us? The birds in the sky, the fish of the sea, and everything that lives underwater. Lord our God. Psalm 8. The 8th Psalm. Yep. O Lord, how excellent. Psalm 8 verse 1. Oh, verse 1. Sorry, sorry, yeah. Psalm 8, verse 1 and verse 9. Go ahead. Lord, our Lord, your name is the most wonderful name in all the earth. Mm -hmm. It brings you praise in heaven above. All right, verse 9. Lord, our Lord, your name is the most wonderful name in all the earth. Right, so this, that phrase, most wonderful, what translation do you have? Is it NIV? Good news. Good news, okay. So that phrase that he reads in his Bible, I'm sure many of you have King James or New King James, it says, how excellent, right? That's where we get the, the song from, how excellent is your name in all the earth. So this concept of the name of God, right? So we were first created in the image of God, yes? Now, the Bible says that God's name is what? Excellent, right? So God's name is excellent. I'm actually going to just flip this over. So we see I was created in God's image, his name is excellent. Now, I'm going to look at one other thing, which is the concept of glory. Now, there is a text we read in church for our scripture reading. Let's go there, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. And if someone can read that for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. All right, so now follow this. The Bible says, and we all with open face beholding are changed into the same what? What are we changed into? It's okay. It's not a rhetorical question. I want you, this is a dialogue. It's a seminar. <laughs> So, so the whole thing is, is that we are changed into the same what? Image. But how are we changed into the same image, the text says? From image to image? From what? Glory to glory. Glory to glory. Even by the Spirit of the Lord, right? So what is he equating? Right. Image and glory. Do you see that? So I'm changed into the same image from glory to glory. Is it an immediate process according to the text? Right? So he says you're changed from one glory of God to the next glory of God. And you're changed into the same image. So image and glory are the same. Right? Yes or no? So we say that God, glory, and his image. So we were made in the image of God. Now go to Isaiah chapter 43. Just to uh, solidify this. And someone read verse 7. All right, so we were created for what? And we were made in his? So did not God create us to reflect his image? So he called us to reflect his glory. Does everyone follow that? Yes or no? Now, the question is, can we connect God's name to his glory and his image? That becomes the question, right? Well, let's go to Exodus. Let's go to Exodus. 33. And someone read verse 18. Start in verse 18. Anyone who has it can read it. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Keep reading. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now go to verse 22. And it shall come to pass while my glory passes by that I will put thee in the cliff of the rock and I will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. Now notice this. Moses told God, he said, I beseech you, show me your what? Your glory. And then God says in verse 19, I will make all my 
goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the, the name of the Lord. Do you see that? Did he say, I will show you my glory? Is that what he said? Let's look at the text. So, is God, uh, is God playing a trick on Moses? Lord, can you show me your glory? I'll proclaim my name. <laughs> no, obviously he's telling him, look, I'm going to make, he says, I'm going to proclaim my name. And then in verse 22, God goes back and says, I'll make my glory pass before you. Are you following me? So now there is a literal glory to the passage. And there's also the concept that God says, I'm going to proclaim my name. Now we know in, verse, in chapter 34, what did God give to Moses? When he proclaimed his name, the commandments, right? That reflect the character of God, right? So we can connect here the name of the Lord to his glory. Are you following me? Yes or no? Okay, so here we have Exodus 33, 18 to 22, connects name and glory as equal. Now we just connected image and glory, right? Yes or no? Now we're saying name and glory are the same. So therefore, name and image are the same. So when Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, they bore the... And they were in his... They had his name, right? Now, here's the interesting thing about the concept of name. So the Bible says that God's name is what? In Psalm 8, what is it? It's excellent, right? So God's name is excellent. In my translation, in yeah. German, good translation says glory. Glory. It say excellent. Correct, correct. So you have this concept that excellence is in the very name of God, the very image of God, the very glory of God, right? God is excellent. So therefore, if we were made in the image of God, we were created to be excellent, right? So you have this concept now. We're continuing going then, not from glory to glory, but from excellence to excellence. Are you following me? So you're at a state of excellence. You have surpassed, but there's more to surpass. Then you get there, there's more to surpass. Then you get there, there's more to surpass. From glory to glory to glory to glory. Now, let's talk about God's name briefly. Now, the Hebrew word, and I think I have a scholar here, so just in case I lose my, my way. The Hebrew word is this word, Shem. It's actually pronounced shame. Can you guys say that with me? Shame, right? Like it's a shame that y'all came to my seminar. And you didn't, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so the word shame is the Hebrew word for name. That's a way to remember it. So what's the Hebrew word for name? Shame, right? It rhymes. You follow that? Now, if there was, this is a, also a singular noun. If they wanted the plural, and I'm going to show you some verses. If they wanted plural, it would be S-H-M-U-D, shmud. That means more than one. Names. So you know, like, I have many names is something I might say to somebody. They say, well, what do people call you? I have many names. I have shmud. <laughs> in other words, I have many names. Now follow this. We're going to look at some text in the Bible briefly. So let's go to, what's the best one to see? Let's go to, since we're in Exodus, let's look at verse 14, Exodus 34. Someone read that for us. Exodus 34, verse 14. She got to keep time so I don't lose 250, right? Okay. Got to wrap this up soon. 34, 14, whoever has it. For thou shalt worship no other God, for the, God, the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Now, is that God's name? That what we call him, the jealous God? When we pray, we say, oh, heavenly jealous God. <laughs> is that what, is that, so it's saying his name is a jealous God, right? So notice it says, for thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous. <laughs> so it's jealous God's name. So that's, that's kind of like, I don't think his name is jealous, right? But we're going to look at another text. Go to Proverbs chapter 21. Proverbs 21. Look at a use of this Hebrew word. Proverbs 21. And we're going to look at verse 24. Someone read that. Proud and haughty scorner is his what? Name. Who deals, right? Notice. Who deals in proud wrath. 
So in essence, we're saying his name. Now, is that saying that's actually the name of the person? So if I deal in proud wrath, my name is proud and haughty. Is that my name? No, my name is Sebastian, <laughs> who dealt in proud wrath. So when it's talking about name, it's dealing with a certain kind of character, the very essence of the individual. Now, we're going to look at one more instance. Go to Isaiah chapter 9. And this is the most compelling argument to show that name in the Bible represents your very essence, who you are, the essential meaning of, of who you are. Isaiah 9, we know this verse, verse 6. Anyone? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. His what shall be called? His name. His name. Now, are, are there more than one names listed in that text? So if there was more than one names anticipated, which Hebrew word would they use? Shmood, right? But guess which word they used? His shame. Shall be wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. So what is it assuming that all these are one and the same thing? It uses singular, his name. So the concept of knowing a person's name in the Bible is knowing the very essence of who they are. So if you, someone asks you your name in the Bible, you're, I mean, that's like asking a very personal thing. Now, we're going to look at an identity issue really briefly. And then I have to um, go back to some of our slides. Go to Genesis. I'm going to look at the story of Jacob. And I want you to notice something powerful here. Genesis, and we're going to look at 27. We know the story. Isaac was about to bless Esau, right? And Jacob came... To get the blessing, with the advice of his mother, she gave him a whole plan. They had the whole mission impossible thing. He's kept out. I'm going to make you skins and all this other stuff. And Jacob was walking up. I mean, you can almost hear the music in the Bible. The mission impossible music in the background. Then he walks in and notice with me in verse 18. Follow this very carefully. And he came unto his father and said, my father. And he said, here am I. Who art thou, my son? And he says, and Jacob said unto his father, I am Esau, thy firstborn. Now who said unto his father? Jacob, right? Said unto his father, I am Jacob. What did he say? I am Esau, your son, right? Your firstborn. I have done according as thou badest me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison that thy soul may bless me. And Isaac said unto his son, how is it that thou found it so quickly, my son? And he said, because the Lord thy God brought it unto me. Quick thinking, Jacob. <laughs> Didn't think about that one, Mom, but I got out of it. Verse 21. And Isaac said to who? Jacob, not to Esau. Come near, I pray thee, that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my very son Esau or not. Now, what does that tell you about what's going on in Isaac's mind? He's not fully convinced, right? He's saying, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Is this really Esau? So he says, okay. Come near, my son, that I may feel you, if you're really my son, Esau, or not. Notice what happens. Verse 22, And Jacob went near unto Isaac his father, and he felt him, and he said, The voice is whose voice? Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. So imagine the confusion in Isaac's mind. He's blind. So he's saying, look, he could not see Jacob's true identity. Are you following me? So when you say a person's name, their very essence, I cannot see your essence. Isn't that true? I can't see who you really are. In your heart of hearts and in your mind, I cannot see that. So in this essence, Isaac represents humanity's ability to perceive the name of other people. I cannot see it. So then you have this concept where Jacob is experiencing identity theft. You thought this was a new thing, right? Steal your ID and stuff? No, Jacob was the originator. He stole the identity of Esau. He knew how he would, he knew the food that he would cook. He had his mom hook it up. Then he also knew how he was hairy. I'm not hairy. So he put on these hoary garments. So then he comes near and then everyone's thinking when you're trying to be someone that you're really not, when you're not true to your name, when you're not true to your essence of who you are in your own heart, people will say, look, you sound like David Ashrick. You sound like Peter Gregory. You sound like this person, but the voice is Sebastian. I can't put my finger on it. But when we try to be something and someone who we are not, people still sense that's not really you. Because we think in order to get a blessing, I have to be someone that I'm not. In order for me to excel, I have to be someone that I'm not. 
So we come before our Heavenly Father as if we are Esau, thinking, well, he wants to bless Esau, so I got to be like Esau. And so this is one of the struggles that starts Jacob upon the means of being this stranger, this sojourner, and he's fleeing. He's a fugitive. And then we know, go over a few chapters, Genesis 32. And Jacob has been going around. He's been fleeing. He's finally told God, Lord, if you'll bless me, then I'll come back. And all these things, God gives him his promises. Jacob responds. And this is what happens as he's coming back to see his brother Esau. He's afraid. And we know the story. He meets an angel, right? Yes? Okay. Just want to make sure you're with me. So in, in uh, 32, and he sent them over. And notice what happens starting in verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint. And he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou do what? Bless me. Bless me, right? Now follow the sequence here. The angel said unto him, What is your name? Who was he wrestling with? God, right? He was wrestling with Jesus. He knew when his thigh got touched, this is not a normal brother. <laughs> I've wrestled with, I have six brothers and sisters. I've wrestled with people before. Someone touches your thigh and it goes out of joint. You're like, this person's superhuman. I would let go. <laughs> I don't want to be anywhere near wrestling with this person. But Jacob said, no, this is not a usual man. This is not a regular man. He realized I'm wrestling with God. And after all his life thinking, and I wish I had time to develop this, he thought he had to be Esau to be blessed. So now he went, this sent him on this little crusade, he's a fugitive, and now before God blesses him, he says, look, I'm not going to let you go except you bless me. You see, he deceived Isaac to get a blessing too. But now coming before God, you cannot hide your name. You're wrestling with God. And now God says, now you're coming before me as your heavenly father, what is your name? I am Jacob. He was finally willing to believe that God would bless him as Jacob. And then the angel said, your name's no longer Jacob. It's Israel. Are you following me? God can change your very essence. He can change your name. So, building upon this, we see from our creation, God had created us for excellence. And the fact that humanity has fallen into sin and the image of God has been deformed, that means what have we lost? Our sense of excellence. Excellence is not natural to us. I want you to notice some of these statements from the Spirit of Prophecy. Something better, this is from the book Education, page 16. Ellen White says this, Something better is the law, is the watchword of education, the law of all true living. Something better. She says, it's the law. It's the law. Notice this next statement. She says this. Can someone hit the lights in the back? Maybe hard to see. She says, all, all the very capabilities that men possess are given them by God to be so employed as to reach what kind of degree? The highest possible degree of excellence. <laughs> Is that any plainer? So all the capabilities that men possess, she lists them out, mind, body, and soul. I just cut it out for the slide content. Are given by God to be so employed as to reach the highest possible degree of excellence. Notice what she says now. But this cannot be a selfish and exclusive culture. Every faculty, every attribute is to be employed for his glory and for the uplifting of our fellow men. And in this employment is found its purest, noblest, and happiest exercise. Now she says, if teachers applied this, she says, instead of appealing to pride and selfish ambition, kindling a spirit of emulation, we just talked about that, trying to be the Esau's of our day, teachers would endeavor to awaken the love of goodness and truth and beauty to arouse the desire for excellence. The student would seek the development of God's gifts in himself, not to excel others, but to fulfill the purpose of the creator and to receive his likeness. So follow this. She says, we would seek to develop or to, huh? This is in, um, oh, actually I have it here in my notes, sorry. This is from Reflecting Christ. Ooh, let's see. 
It's from uh, this same Reflecting Christ, page 158. Sorry about that. So she says that us seeking a desire for excellence, she says, will lead us to fulfill the purpose of the Creator and to receive His likeness. You cannot be like Jesus and not be excellent. Excellence helps us to fulfill the purpose in our creation, which is to get back to the image of God and to receive His likeness. Notice this next statement. Instead of being directed to merely earthly standards or being actuated by the desire for self-exaltation, which in and itself dwarfs and belittles, the mind would be directed to the Creator to know Him and to become like Him. It is the law of the mind that it gradually adapts itself to the subjects upon which it is trained to dwell. If, we, if occupied with commonplace matters only, it will become dwarfed and enfeebled. If never required to grapple with difficult problems, it will after a time almost lose the power of growth. We need to learn how to respond to challenges, she says. Notice this, success depends not so much on talent as on energy and willingness. It is not the possession of splendid talents that enables us to render acceptable service but the conscientious performance of daily duties, the contented spirit, the unaffected sincere interest in the welfare of others, in the humblest lot true excellence may be found. The commonest tasks wrought with loving faithfulness are beautiful in God's sight. Christian service, page 261. She says, true excellence is found. How many of us made our bed before we went to church? How many of us made sure the kitchen was clean before we finished our breakfast to head on to Sabbath school? She says, in the humblest lot, the littlest thing, she says, the true excellence may be found. True excellence may be found. Listen to this statement. The Lord expects excellence. The Lord expects His servants to excel others in two places. What is that? Life and character. Life and character. If you are a servant and I am a servant of God, He expects us to excel others in our lives and in our characters. He has placed every facility at the command of those who serve Him. The Christian is looked upon by the whole universe as one who strives for the mastery, running the race that is set before Him. Make it manifest that His motives, she's talking to us now, to make it manifest that our motives are above those of the world in this great contest where there's everything to win and everything to lose. He is to make use of every entrusted power. You know, many of us think we can't sing. But the fact that God has given you a voice means that you need to develop it. Don't be contented. Oh, I can't sing, so I never work on my singing voice. So in this sense, she says, we need to make use of every entrusted power that we have. God expects His institutions to excel those of the world. Thank you. I'll take that one. Amen. <laughs> Southern Adventist University, the Bible, she says here in Spirit of Prophecy, God expects this school to excel the schools of the world. But it's not for selfish ambition as we talked about earlier. Follow this. Christ says of you, yet lackest thou one thing. He has given you a plain statement of what you lack. He has, through his humble servant, shown you that you lack devotion to the glory of God. Now the glory of God is also his what? His character, which is also his what? Which is also his image, right? So if you lack devotion to the glory of God, notice what you lack. Moral excellence of character. So we talk about whatsoever you do, eat, drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the what? Glory of God. Are we devoted to the glory of God? Excellence represents our devotion to the glory of God. She says, which would lead you to have an unselfish interest for others. So that gives the practical test. Do I have an unselfish interest for other people? This fizzles up to my moral excellence of character, which fizzles up to my devotion to the glory of God. To bring the sinner to Christ is the work of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. The Savior is the divine example, the perfection of holiness, and He fashions the soul anew. We are privileged to receive from Christ all the excellence necessary for perfection of character. You see, people thought this seminar about excellence was going to be about righteousness by works. <laughs> oh yeah, all these things about excellence? Well, guess what? This day with God, she makes it plain. God has placed it so that the Holy Spirit convicts your heart and my heart to come to Jesus. Then we receive all the excellence from Jesus 
for perfection of character. But in order for us to obtain this excellence, we must show more self-denial and more self-sacrifice. That's the way to receive it. He must increase and I must decrease. Now, I'm, I'm, basically, I'm closing. Let us strive by receiving his word. Receiving his what? His word. To reach the high standard of perfection. We are safe only when seeking the qualities that make us children of God. Possessors of sanctified excellence. A child of God is a possessor of sanctified excellence. Someone can hit the lights for us. So today, see what time that we have. Ooh. Okay, so I'm four minutes over. I know that the next seminar is going to start at 3 o'clock, but I just want to conclude with these statements. Essentially, this seminar was simply to build for us the need for excellence. We have lost it through the deformity of sin. And as a result of that, God seeks to restore us back to that excellence. So one of the evidence as we are being converted and we are surrendering our lives to Jesus each day comes out in our excellence in the tasks of life. You see, many of us, we're in school, but we want to be missionaries. I know, I know how you feel. I went to a secular university. You're like, Lord, I'm trying to get done with schoolwork, turning in papers, assignments, math problems, go overseas. I could be using my time to preach the gospel. But the reality is this, is that, and we'll look at the statement in the next seminar. She says in Desire of Ages, Jesus was as perfect in the carpenter shop as he was in his character. Then she goes on to say, that he was just as faithfully fulfilling his mission on earth when he was in the carpenter shop as when he was by the Sea of Galilee healing the sick and giving sight to the blind. He came to show us, friends, how to be excellent. But it came from character. Whatever he puts his hand to. You ever read that verse? Proverbs 1? Will prosper. Excellence is not an issue of result. It comes from the character. You cannot separate what something is from what it will produce. We have to first be excellent here, then everything else that will come out as we continue to surpass. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just a brief opportunity we got to dive into this subject of the need for excellence. Lord, the power of excellence to overcome sexism and racism and all the other isms. Lord, but we have saw that it was your intention from creation by creating us in your image that we should be excellent. Not to excel others, but to excel to the devotion and the glory of God. To desire to serve our Creator and to serve our fellow men. That excellent and greatness are not about pushing others down, but about pushing ourselves down. We pray, Lord, that you would give us this spirit, actuate and arouse in us a desire for excellence, to be the very best in whatever we do, not for our sakes, not for even our institutions, but for the sake of the glory of God and of Jesus Christ, our lovely Savior. This is our prayer, and we ask that you'll help this to be our experience. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.